millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Oh, so this is what it feels like. 2014, a new year, new blank canvas. I hope 2014 brings you all sorts of wonderful adventures and fortune and good health and happy coincidence and uh, and words as well. My year is going to be about words and literature and so today's show seems a fitting start to that. We're off to immerse ourselves in poetry, exploring a new book that seeks to fuse poetry and herbs could make a good present. It's only 350 days until Christmas, you know. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. place in London, I think. I'm in the Saison Poetry Library. Even the traffic seems to be keeping it down. In case you're not aware, the Saison Poetry Library is part of the Royal Festival Hall, which itself is part of the South Bank Complex, and with me are poet Chris McCabe and herbalist and artist and and publisher Maria Vlotidez. Hello, you both. Hello. Hi, good morning. Good morning. We should explain why we're here. Primarily, we're here to talk about Pharma Poetica, which is a dispensary of poetry, a very beautiful object containing, just as it suggests, delicious poetry based around herbs and plants but it's setting today here in the poetry library is because Chris McCabe you're the, the manager here and I thought it was a perfect opportunity really to look around a place that I think some people don't know about still remarkably and yeah. uh, maybe to highlight what you do. Yeah we try our best to let people know kind of what we do here with the largest collection of contemporary poetry in the UK so it's a unique resource and uh, as you said before we're based at the heart of South Bank Centre which is 21 acres of multidisciplinary art and at the, at the centre of it we've got this amazing collection of poetry going back to 1912 and it's also the place where Maria and I first met and that set us off on our collaboration for Pharma Poetica. Let's put a bit of a soft focus around the, the edges of the screen now and we'll go back to that distant day when you first met each other. Can you tell us about that and um, how that meeting resulted in the work that is sitting here before us, Maria? Um, Well, I worked on a project called Pavement Poetry a few years ago, and although the book itself wasn't 
um, about poetry specifically, it was an art project with a sort of poetic uh, concept at its heart, which was um, to put uh, text on the streets of London, uh, West London. I published a book on it and thought that the Poetry Library might be interested in having a couple of copies, so I came along with it spoke to Chris and um, not only did he take two copies much to my delight but he was also um, a very interesting person we got on very well and uh, in my mind planted the seed of, of starting to do another poetry, poetry collaboration but uh, possibly with him so. Yes, listener, it's a poetry love in here today. <laughs> I, I don't always hijack uh, the publishers who come to sell books in the library, but as Maria says, you know, we had a really kind of interesting, fruitful conversation. And the Pavement Poetry Project really interested me because it was poetry in landscape. You know, it was very different from farmer poetic because it was urban. It was, mm-hmm. you know, poetry in coal hole covers in the pavements in West London. So that was something which really excited my interest in what's often called psycho geography. You know, and, and certainly poetry in the landscape is something that is really a large part of South Bank Centre as well. I mean, just looking out the window, we can see there's a bridge there with a poem across the bridge. We measure our hearts, which is part of a big project bringing London poems from every borough to this this particular part of London. And you know, it's something which I'm interested in because I don't I don't believe that poems necessarily begin and end on the page. And people's engagement with poetry that, that doesn't often fit into that really neat frame either. So, pavement poetry was just a really interesting and um, innovative way, really, of, of, of getting poetry out to a different audience. It's clear you share a belief in that respect. I'm wondering how you came upon that belief, whether it was something that was sort of built into the poetry that you read in younger days or whether it was something you had to work your mind around to. I think I've come to poetry through art. Um, the idea of putting something in the landscape that you're not expecting or coming across, a bit like the amazing singing lift, I don't know if that's the right term, Chris, in this building, the first, one I, well, the first time I went into it, I thought of it as an act of poetry in itself, and that's not sounding too pretentious, but um, I'm, I'm not, I, I didn't read that much poetry at school, and it's not something I've thought about consciously about doing, going through it through art terms. Um, it's about bringing, for me, bringing poetry to an audience that would be outside of the poetry world, so to speak. So with the pavement poetry, it was about putting work out there that, you know, would 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 be seen by anyone or, or no one, but um, but there wasn't a specific target audience. Um, with this collaboration, Pharma Poetica, uh, my interest in bringing a more scientific audience possibly to poetry or an audience interested in, in botany or herbs or gardening, there's a rich tradition of using nature as as an inspiration for poetry as well as uh, poetry in natural context nature context rather than urban context so um, for me it was all about bringing different audiences to it yes just before we started the broadcast we were working out what we should call everybody here uh, and we, we've come up with a long list and we've hacked that down to for example from for you Maria herbalist and artist and publisher and I know there's a string of other things we can attach same goes for you Chris I wonder whether those issues around categorization also obtain within your art are you able to define yourself as a particular kind of artist or working in uh, particular media or how, how does that work for you? Mm, I, I don't categorise myself I, I don't know, maybe it's something I don't think about enough but um, or maybe I don't think it's that important. I, I like doing work in the public domain um, rather than within a gallery space and I think it's combining different different disciplines is also what's interesting because you get to explore the the gaps that sometimes you know things fall outside and therefore are left empty. 
if that mm. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And likewise, you know, from a poetry perspective, there's a great quote from Ezra Pound where he said, publishing a volume of poetry is like throwing a leaf down a canyon and waiting to hear the echo. And it becomes frustrating after a while, you know, when you realise where the limits of the art form are, you know, whether it's visual art or, or, or language art, you know you're going to be delivering to the same people, the same audience, the same faces, you know, and, and there's a, a limit to the, the outreach of that. Whereas when you take the edges off, there's a great fluidity and, and, a, and a great possibility that you're going to connect with different people in different ways. And that's really what excited me about, about working with Maria and, and more broadly about poetry off the page is that, you know, if people who aren't necessarily interested in poetry that's fine, but we're, we're all kind of bound by language you know, and we're all um, aware of the possibilities through language and it's, it's when you start kind of uh, kind of taking off the frame of the page that people connect in, in ways that might not have been expected for them. Or, or the boundaries, yeah, are taken down because I think there's a lot of boundaries around art and poetry and medicine, all those three things have sort of issues around them that people are uh, resistant towards. So I think by, by t- changing the context in which they're framed, it does allow people to sort of teeter towards it in a way they might not otherwise want to um and going back as well to the publishing uh, element to, to what i do um i treat that very much as an art work in itself um publishing now is changing so much anyway it's become much easier for in- individuals to publish work um because of the printing costs being reduced but at the same time publishing is going through this sort of digitization and so for me it's very much creating something that's still um, as an object is is can be touched and felt and and seen a bit more as a work of art so mm. that's yeah. what's interesting the copy of pharmapoetica we've got here it's um now i'm going to call this double gatefold and immediately decide that i'm wrong no no that sounds, that sounds right but i'm not very technical <laughs> <laughs> i think in in album uh, in albums of old i think that's how it works with the vinyl um on the front cover here we've got a big beautiful glass jar one of those uh, old victorian uh, pharmacy yeah Apothecary jars. Yes, and inside it's some sort of uh, herb going on. Now, uh, is the poetry medicinal here? I don't believe poetry should be offered as medicine because um, we all know from our childhood experiences that things offered on a spoon are quite quickly spat out. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think the, the argument that art is good for you, it will cure you, it will make you feel better, it will offer some kind of balm to existence is often something that people renege against. Um, it's fabulous when people connect with it in that way and they do feel those benefits, but I wouldn't um, brand it as such. We were talking about the closed audiences almost closed audiences um potentially if poetry exists just within the pages of books of poetry and there's that sort of there can be that psychological barrier that psychological bar to entry um you use the word pretentious maria what what are the issues there because i think some people do see uh, poetry is perhaps intimidating and and therefore it's easy to tag it with the label of pretension i think there are some uh, silly people in the poetry world who who only add to the idea of it being pretentious. How do you break down that uh, misconception? I think, I mean, a fact, everyone comes to poetry at some point in their life. It's usually around a birth, a death or a funeral. You can't... You mean Hallmark cards, of course. Well, I'm Purple Ronnie, you know, let's not forget him. You know, so at the Poetry Library, you know, a service we offer, it's a, not quite a daily, but certainly a weekly thing, is people say, I'm, I'm going to get married, uh, a child's just been born, someone I love has just died, I need to find the words which I can't 
find myself to, to mark this occasion, this this life occasion, this event. And people will come to poetry and will look for the words which which fill in the space which they can't quite quite fill themselves. Um, but you know that's that that's a response. That's a kind of guttural instinct from the person that they need those words at that at that particular point. There's nothing pretentious about that. It's a need, you know, it's a need to express, it's a need to mark, it's a need to define. I think like most art forms though, you know, it's kind of the be- the Beatles started off with two minute pop songs and ended up with um the White Album, you know, kind of you, you know, once you're in the art, you want to find out what's possible within the art and obviously, you know, poets are uh, are good at kind of pushing and pushing and pushing until it's a form which maybe means a lot to other poets, but not that so much to the rest of the world, which 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 you can expect in every art form. And the the word pretent- I mean, pretentious, the way I used it, um, it's it's quite subjective. Well, I guess what words are, but you know what's pretentious to, to somebody isn't pretentious to somebody else. And I think sometimes that um, that anxiety over pretension can get in the way of of being more open minded. Um, Nowadays, I don't know, so much is about um, the self and about marketing and about all the sorts of things. So in a way, one could say that is sort of pretentious in itself. It's all about pretense. We are all pretending to to do something or be somebody else through through these different sort of interfaces. So maybe, yeah, maybe one should just put it to one side and... And explore things. Uh, yeah, quietly. it's the diff- pressure to wrap things up. I think you know, it's um, once you come up with a project. I mean, it was quite an amorphous idea that we had, you know, around herbs and poetry and how that w- would be contained. And 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 then you kind of get to the stage of how are we going to explain it to people? How are we going to present it to people? How are we going to sell it to people? You know, how are we going <laughs> to get people to the event? And you know, you you need, unfortunately, you need a title. You need a bit of copy. You need um, uh, you know, a good argument that it's a uh, it's a worthwhile thing for people to engage with. Are you yourself when you write poetry? Um, I am most myself when I write poetry, um, but I'm probably speaking to somebody who doesn't exist, which is kind of, the, for me, that's the bigger conversation. Like, who are you writing for? Is there one person in mind? Is there an audience in mind? You know, is it an ideal person, an ideal reader? You know, I've never quite defined. I think I've got a number of different people that I would like to listen to different kinds of poems that I write and I've never quite kind of worked out who that audience is but you're you're you in the sense that it's your not just your voice but your persona yeah you know I think I've been writing poetry for so long it's kind of it's such an integral part of my kind of being if you like you know I think I think in poetry in the sense of the music of the words you know I often carry bits of poems around with me before writing them down and you know that that becomes quite an odd experience because when you're making a cup of tea you're not making a cup of tea you're kind of working on a poem you know when you're waiting at a bus stop you're not waiting at a bus stop you're working on a poem so it's difficult to say this is real me not real me you know it's kind of all part of just being and thinking and and and, and me you know kind of justifying the the points of being here really you know which we all have to do at various points this is one of the daily battles i have on the on the home front when i'm busy making a cup of coffee and i'm interrupted by my partner and she she can't possibly understand that i'm working on (laughs) my novel at the moment (laughs) understandably perhaps breakthrough moments over over in nescafe yep we've all been there um curator maria um, could you select a poem for us, please, for Chris to read. Well, um, I mean, I think we're, we're going to start um, with one of Chris's poems, that are not, not in the book. Um, Chris worked on another project before we started our collaboration 
and um, that was part of the Urban Physic Garden, I believe, in Southwark. Um, they commissioned an anthology of poetry by various poets called Herbarium, and it was just coincidental that Chris was working on this when I came up with the idea of, of getting him to write poems about herbs that I was going to throw at him, sort of ideas and notes and things. Um, so... I don't know, I think maybe we'll start with a poem, his poem, which is on nettles, one of my favourite plants. Um, and, um, and then we'll talk about which poems we'll read from the book. Yeah, and this book, um, Herbarium, is a limited book. Um, at the Poetry Library, we've got a couple of copies, but it was limited to 100 copies. And by the time all the poets got the copy, you know, their own copies, there's about possibly around 60 poets in here. And they were all given a, a herb to write on. And I chose nettles, which really, you know, kind of set the um, the landscape really for for the farmer poetical project. Because through this poem, I wanted to see the herb and experience the herb through my son, who at the time was about three, and in a very straightforward way, he was you know closer to the earth, he was you know closer to the ground, and he was coming into language as well. So I think through all these poems, there's a sense of um, of him arriving in the world and me trying to arrive at a, a, an understanding of the world. And, and these herbs, which uh, I'd not really thought about in any great detail, I realised had a lot of cultural associations with herbs and a lot of. Um, poetry that had been written in my head around herbs already um, but you know from a scientific pr- perspective Maria was setting me off on all kinds of explosions of knowledge which I'd never really considered before so I um, wrote this poem Nettles for the Herbarium book you know I'd never actually thought of, uh, of nettles as a su- subject for a poem before but the closer I looked at them two of all these poems really the more I realised that it, you know, there was a, a kind of whole um, microcosmic world within the, 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 you know, the thing itself. So, nettles, stinging hairs there as not there, the light around your mouth in bars, late ambers play tricks. Do you know the trouble this could cause? It hurts for hours afterwards, like mentally what I do to myself. A doc leaves apocryphal, or are we talking prescriptions? The hairs around your mouth and jawline Softer than threads And without essences or legacies The danger is in what they could make me do The stamen of a tongue The remembered spoken Lumps under skin for decades How do you explain to a boy of three Who's never been stung That just to touch green so soft Will rash away his happiness Without permission, he disbands school shorts, passes water in the triffid shoots until the cod bone bristles disappear. To explain how something that isn't there can sting is like his first symposium on the metaphysical heart. Hairs so faint on a desirous tongue that went ways outside of easiness to first furrow for taste. Then there was someone else stood small in the green-scented room. Someone who blots up the time it would take us to kiss. He sings. The words he speaks in our breath balms the absence as dock leaves do stings. That was magnificent. Yeah, I mean, that really just set us off, didn't it? So I'd written this poem, and Maria had the idea for Pharma Poetica, you know, ten poems about herbs. Um, 
with the constraints that um, the idea was for the poem not to exist as we spoke about at the beginning on the page but to exist as a label on a jar which would contain a specimen of the plant or medicinal plant that it was about and this was something I was inspired by a jar that I'd seen in um, in book art bookshop um, which I now subsequently at the time didn't know who had done it or who the author was but I've now discovered it was Alec Finley which uh, ties in quite nicely to the pavement poetry project also referencing a lot of Ian Hamilton Finley's work um, but my constraint then for Chris was to write a poem that would fit on a label that would fit on the jar so there was again a bit like pavement poetry a physical constraint to the amount of words or letters that could fit in a certain space so um, it was quite a challenge I think to, to write something that would, yeah. would fit in, in a small on a smaller label Yeah, <laughs> and I set myself a number of constraints uh, in addition to that as well I decided I was going to write the poems 10 poems in a week I was going to Cornwall with my wife and son on a holiday and that was my constraints if you like I was going to write the 10 poems in 7 days and within that I didn't feel I had to find the herb to write the poem the experience of looking for the herb should hopefully possibly be enough to enact the the, the kind of excitement in, in language to, to make the poem happen so I, I went away and I, and I you know kind of wrote these poems in 10 days and it was you know it was not always straightforward you know certain things that I couldn't find um Absinthe, for example, you know, a lot of the herbs that I had to find in alcoholic drinks, unfortunately, I had to go to the bar and... I'm not uh, sure. Yeah, it was, it was a, tr- a, tr- a tricky weekend, you know, the, the, the very last... So, let, no, let me get this straight, you, you've gone on holiday with, with your wife and boy, and you're off down the pub, oh, it's for poetry, darling. Yeah, of course, it's all in the name of art, <laughs> you know, that was um, on the last day, for example, I had one poem to write on absinthe. Well, Wormwood. Oh, Wormwood, yeah, Wormwood, yeah, yeah. I... I you drank the abs. <laughs> exactly. So I was in the, I was in the, the disco on the holiday camp, and um, <laughs> I thought, when am I going to find Wormwood at this, you know, this, this stage of the evening in Cornwall in, in a holiday camp? I thought absent, obviously, you know, there's a whole history of poets kind of taking Wormwood in through that route. So I went to the bar and um, got the funniest look I think I've ever had from anyone when I said, "Have you got any absent?" <laughs> I was just kind of sent packing, but you know, it, it was it, the whole experience was enough for a, a poem to happen. And how are things at home now? Uh, I live by myself now, I don't really. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's um, the books, you know, a, a, a kind of container in, in itself of that experience as well, which is what I'm really fond of and what my wife and son are really fond of. You know, it's like we kind of wrapped up the holiday in this, in, in this book. You know, the landscape, it's quite outdoorsy, farmer poetica. I think a lot of the landscape came into the, into the book and I, I really enjoy that. Can we hear that poem? Yeah, that's that one. Um, it's, a, it's not the last in the book, but it's the last one that I wrote. It references a number of different things in the disco. So, party in the dark was a game that the kids were invited to play. My son had a glow stick, you know, one of those kind of um, snap glow sticks that kind of you dance with and they light up on, on the dance floor. And a number of songs came into the poem as well that were being played by the DJ. Wormwood, for party in the dark, this is the herb. The first CCTV was absent with the worming. It followed you around the room. Now the boy has a glow sword. It works by snapping to a light stick. Full glow can take a few minutes. Do not drink or digest. If I could work this out, I'd be a symbolist. The song runs, I'm a little yellow fish in the deep blue sea. Won't somebody save me? The next, big fish, little fish, cardboard box. Between party in the dark and rock and roll bingo. I ask at the bar, do you have any absinthe? 
and say, no, we are parents, we have a boy. The last drug we took was at his birth. The companion piece to that poem is the picture on the, in the other half of the book, and it's got a picture of the jar with the poem on it and some information about Wormwood itself, I presume. And uh, Well, uh, let's step away from poetry completely for a moment. I'd love to talk about the, the herbal side of things because that, of course, deserves uh, its spot here too. Well, the, the picture that you mention is taken um, from the art piece itself. So Pharmapoetica, I don't know if we made that clear, but it started as an artwork rather than a book, and it's um, a cabinet, a medical cabinet, full of um, te- well, 10 jars with um, the labels, the poetry labels and the herbs inside. And I liked what Chris was just saying now about the book containing the nature uh, and his holiday um, because each of these jars are also con- yeah, containing nature in that sense. So um, there's different plant specimens that came from different places. I think the wormwood I purchased because it was quite a difficult plant for me to, to find and uh, to dry and cultivate. But some of the other specimens in the other jars like on the front cover for example we've got St John's Word and that was um, a cutting given to me by somebody in Greece um, on the back of the book there's um, cutting of bay bay leaves which I took from outside my, my front door um, the daisies on the inside flap were collected in Regent's Park and uh, Hyde Park and very patiently dried. <laughs> so there's still that psychogeographic element in the collection of the, I, I have to ask what's the difficulty with Wormwood? Um, in well, there's not that much difficulty. I guess I was on a bit of a time scale, <laughs> and also in London, it's not that easy to come across. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, and I think it's 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 traditional use as an abortifacient, which it would have been because it has quite a strong action on the on the uterine muscle. Um, due to its bitterness, it's one of the most bitter herbs um, that, that that we have. Uh, maybe made it something that people don't necessarily cultivate and uh, has has an element around it that's not exactly taboo but there's an element to wormwood which uh, and and its relationship to absinthe and the um, in large doses it's hallucinogenic uh, actions Um, so um, but I just didn't get a chance to find that much in London but I was trying to find the herbs myself within within a a certain area around where I lived so that I could uh, put that or brought them back from Greece which is uh, where my father's from so what's life like as a herbalist it's uh fun <laughs> it's i mean being a herbalist is it has lots of different um i mean i i'm i'm a clinician as well as um a teacher i think there's lots of different guises in which to be a herbalist um but it's you're definitely living on the fringes of uh you know the me- the the medical establishment, if not not completely outside of it. So, so we're, 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 I'm just trying to picture what your uh, <laughs> what a, a day as a herbalist might consist of. And you say a clinician, so you're in an establishment of some sort, uh, dishing out advice. Or? Yeah, mo- I mean, most herbalists practice in therapy centres. So um, you would see um, a client or patients take a history and um, prescribe herbs for them, either through well, mainly through tinctures, alcoholic extracts, which you can then blend to suit and ta- you know tailored to suit the the patient and their their particular condition but it's it's not sort of it's not giving a herb in the way that you'd give a drug it's it's not just about um tackling one symptom or 
you're, you're prescribing for the whole person. So no two people with eczema have the same prescription, really, because they've got other things going on and some, some might have a hotter eczema or cold eczema. Again, this sounds quite a medieval way of looking at it, but, um, but the idea is that you're looking at the individual and, and in their entirety and, and helping them with herbs and diet and lifestyle advice and all sorts of things. So it's a sort of all-rounded approach to, to health. But it doesn't mean that herbalists are anti-drugs or anti... You know, there's, there's a place for everything, and I guess it's just uh, one particular approach which I, I feel comfortable with and I, I like because of that connection with nature. We should go from uh, from your one of your many lines of work to Chris. Your I don't know whether to call it the secondary or the primary or who cares, but the poetry library that we're in now. Um, should we begin to have a look around? Yeah, why, why don't we? Um, so we're in the library now and we're looking out over South Bank Centre and um, significantly we can see the the rooftop garden which is just just above the Queen Elizabeth Hall and it's a wonderful quite a new place which has been created uh, for people to come and enjoy. Uh, a kind of um, natural landscape in the centre of London and Maria and I have enjoyed a glass of Pims up there during the summertime talking about our project a lot of the herbs that we've written about are in there as well and that gives you an idea of how unexpected really it is at Selpang Centre you know and coming into the poetry library can be a little bit like that you know people think what is this place you know there's a library what kind of library a poetry library what is a poetry library you know it's a kind of amazing thing even to imagine could exist you know a library which is just poetry so uh, i've got to say as well as a, as a writer i use this resource myself a lot and you've got your finger on the pulse of smaller publications which is a lifeline for a lot of writers yeah that's absolutely right we collect between 200 and 300 items a month that's a lot of poetry that's you know mainly uk published um items and that can range from a limited edition broadsides and pamphlets to obviously magazines is a big part of what we do there's about 180 poetry magazines currently in the UK alone and then we collect all the books and DVDs we're standing next to the audio visual collection here we have DVDs and CDs um, you know it's a lot to be collected and it's a real vibrant scene of activity which you know often takes place in people's bedrooms you know in pubs and um, you know in conversation right the way up to big publishers like you know Faber and Faber and Blood Axe who are, who are getting books out to, to bookshops and one thing that people really enjoy about the library is one of the things I enjoy which is it feels like a, a neutral space you know there's um, like most art forms there's, there's divisions and there's um, different ideas of what it should be doing and how people should be interacting with the art well you come to the poetry library and you just get the way it is rather than the way it should be uh, yes there's one element to writing in the present day which is highly performative isn't there and it seems I'm not making a judgement one way or the other but it seems that it's heavily influenced by boozy nights and you've got to have a particular sort of personality to want to get up on stage in front of people and read your stuff out and it changes how one consumes the art form if it's being performed rather than read at your own speed on the on the page so uh, to know that there's a place where quiet contemplation is possible, not that we're allowing it to be quiet at the moment <laughs> doing this interview but a place where contemplation and engaging with the text on a, on a sort of a one-to-one level if that's what you want to do or to see and hear one of the poets who, who you've got on file here and, and maybe repeat that performance as many times as you want by replaying it that's really quite a special thing yeah it is and um, just to flip that over as well it is all those things and that's what's wonderful about the library but it's also a place for those people who are into performance who loves the stage who want to know what the history is 
of slam poetry is, you know, its roots in dub, for example, and poets like Lincoln Kawiti Johnson. We have all those books here. We have the CDs here and DVDs. Oh, so it's not just poetry, it's, it's books about, po- uh, have, about poetry yeah, and the, the practice have, as well. We have books about poetry, we have press cuttings. So if you've got a particular poet or movement in poetry you're interested in, we will have um, taken clippings from newspapers over a long period and put them together in one file and you can ask for that file and you can you can see kind of you know things from the guardian 10 years ago which were written about a particular poet so that's a really unique resource and, and that applies to whatever kind of poetry you're, you're into you know i think sometimes we should be talking about poetries rather than poetry because you know whether the whole diversity that happens within the art can be contained in that one word is kind of up for discussion i think We've got the herb, uh, I think, Pharmapoetica herbs. Uh, you've got uh, Bush Telegraph will be the title for the uh, shrubs and bushes uh, book. And then Poetries. <laughs> you can have that for free. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that with, with Maria. <laughs> something you better have. <laughs> Should we move around the place and see what's here? Yeah, absolutely. So we just walk in uh, past the, the exhibition space that we have. And we've got a current exhibition by the artist Kenneth Wynne Evans. And we're really delighted that he created some new work for us for our 60th birthday, which happened this year. And he's created this incredible vinyl poem which he was very very adamant um, that we should be in a semi-transparent vinyl so it's about um, it's about stars being discovered in the 60s or people thinking that new stars have been discovered in the 60s but actually there were specks of dust on the lens and these things these things were named and uh, and all the rest of it until people realized that they were actually out there in the stratosphere at all, you know, just just needed to to wipe the glass. So to 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 reflect that short poem, which I, th- I think it is a poem, um, he's written. He, he wanted it in a, a, a kind of semi-transparent vinyl, so you can only see certain words uh, at given times. And um, a company that he's created some um, text-based pieces, which are kind of abstract expressionist meets concrete poetry pieces. Really nice black paint slapped on onto the canvas and then he's punctured the page with the alphabet actually cut cut out the alphabet in in the canvas as well i mean what we're seeing here is the alphabet that's that can't be called a poem can it it's a work of art and really you know i think what we're looking at is the idea that that language and each letter within the alphabet is first and foremost a visual sign and I think we take it for granted after a while that language is a is something which, which is a, a given and it's a code that we all understand and we don't really look at the shape of the letters anymore. So I think what Kenneth's inviting us to do, it, whilst having paint on the canvas with, with, with the letters, is to say, well, what, what's what, what's visual and what isn't? You know, so when a letter A is presented in the lower case and it, you know it curls at the top and puts its belly out in the middle and the you know the, the letter B and D face each other back to front about the same sign. You know, what 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 do those letters actually say in themselves, regardless of how they sound or how they make up words? So we're over to via Richards and the shape of a text denoting what sort of text it is. This is dangerous territory. It's a bit like um, typography having a speech, or I, I like the idea that you know, depending on what typeface you use, it's, the words can create a different sound. And going back to um, Pharmapertica, we were discussing what type typography to use for the poetry. And uh, in the book, we, because we've got an image of the, the label and the jar as well as the the printed poem we've used two different typefaces for that 
which I, I like the fact that you can see both of them and read them in a way both differently because mm-hmm. of the type the typefaces. So, mm-hmm. you know, what you were saying about um, yeah. the, the visual signs being different and therefore speaking differently. Yeah, and it's the given it's the given of typography. You know, certain fonts which are used almost universally for certain things. Why is that the case? You know, it's, it's, it's just become a custom. You know, when you open a Word document and it just defaults to Times New Roman, it's a, it's a pretty awful font. You know, it's kind of antiquated. And it's not quite difficult to read, but we're all using it. You know, and then you, someone puts a sign up in a public space. They kind of are going to do that in Comic Sans. You know, Comic Sans can be wiped off the face of the earth. It's such an awful invention. Let's move further into the Saison Poetry Library. London Est Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. I'm with Chris McCabe and Maria Vlotideth, and we're in the heart of the Saison Poetry Library at the Royal Festival Hall. And uh, Chris, who's uh, moonlighting as the manager here, really he's a poet, but uh, <laughs> this is his other line. And we're uh, having a look at what's going on in the poetry. Can we go to the uh, the sort of the heart of the collection? Yeah, why don't we? Um, so we're just walking past the loan collection, and the library's quite unusual in that we have two copies of everything, which means people can come and join free of charge, and they can borrow books from the library like they would do at the public library but we always keep a copy in the library for research purposes which means if people come from a long distance and they want a very specific thing that copy will always be here and I'm just going to walk us up to the uh, rolling stacks because this really is one of the defining features of the library I think people really love these rolling stacks they allow us to get a lot of books into a small space um, because only one person can get in at any one time and it's a a daily kind of um, hazard really you know, people will try to move them all along, and there's someone in there, and you know, the whole kind of thing goes up in flames. And um, we sort it out, and then it happens an hour la- an hour later. And a poet, Chrissy Gittens, actually wrote a poem, De- "Death in the Poetry Library." So she was she, she was imagining, you know, that the worst had happened. Who, who would have thought there could be so much peril here? Well, it's a dangerous art, you know. It's um, everyone knows it. You know, poets disappear young and move to faraway places and never return. You know, well, not that far away. We know where a few of them probably are. Yeah, that's it. We keep we keep them in the library as part of our archive. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, I can move these along and show you how they work if you like. So, what what we've got here uh, about twelve shelves with a wheel attached to them so they, they look a little bit like uh, people describe them a bit like you know kind of a ship steering wheel or something like that and it says not 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 going back to talking about typography you know it says uh, not as clearly as we we maybe should, should have it please check aisle is clear of people before moving shelves um, because if you don't they'll start to move along quite quickly and they're really really heavy and it opens up another shelf of books. And now, what I noticed there was that you didn't check the uh, aisle next to that in case there were people there. Well, what happens is after a while you d- develop this uh, sixth sense, and you can just tell kind of, if anyone's in there or not. It's, it's, quite, it's quite a talent. <laughs> <laughs> and what, uh, where do we go from there? What's, 
we could have a look at the magazine collection, um, which is just reflective of the vibrant scene in poetry. We've got about 180 current magazines from the UK. And I show this to people who chain out that old argument, you know, is, well, isn't poetry dead? You know, is it, it's, it's, it's an it's a obsolete art form, you know, nothing's happening anymore. I just bring them to look at these magazines and say, well, look, these are all current magazines. These are the, the latest issues of magazines. And it reflects the diversity of the art, different kinds of poetry, different kinds of publication. And what I love about them is that really the titles of them, because people who make magazines are often poets or the people who love poetry and play around with language. So we've got um, magazines like The, the Dark Horse, Obsessed with Pipework, um, Gutter magazine, it's quite a good one. My favourite's actually in the archives, which is called Strange Feces, and uh, that, 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 uh, <laughs> that dis- disbanded in the 70s, unfortunately. Um, There's an easy joke I could reach for. I'm going to leave it. <laughs> just leave it. And <laughs> between the magazines, we've got uh, Dylan Thomas, a, bu- a bust of Dylan Thomas, which um, was created by a sculptor. Um, in the 50s called Hugh Olof De Witt and it's a really wonderful um, capturing of Dylan Thomas I think his his head rests upon his tie and he looks like he hasn't slept for a few days it looks like he's very uh, rumpled he's uh, he's had whiskey for breakfast and there's a cigarette kind of just um, just coming at the corner of his mouth we were at the uh, Guildhall Library not so long ago and I was asking Dr. Peter Ross, who's in charge there, how he goes about finding items for his collection. And I was surprised, really, to discover that it's all done by people doing personal investigations, as opposed to there being some big computerised system for finding stuff. It's it's a very sort of touchy-feely personal way of finding individual titles. A lot of these magazines appear for just a few editions and then perhaps might disappear again. Mm. And I was, I've always been impressed that you managed to get hold of those as well. How do you do that? It's exactly as you say, really. It's word of mouth. It's people, users coming into the library asking for certain things. If we haven't got, got it, we'll get it. It's people who create the magazines, you know, coming to us saying, I've just set up a poetry magazine, will you subscribe? And one of the good things about the library is we do subscribe. We like to support poetry publishers so it, it, we're not like the British Library which is great in all manner of ways as well but we are not a deposit library so we pay publishers for the things that we want to collect and likewise you know we do spend some time scouring around if a member of staff spots something and say oh we've got to get this we've got to get that but it's, a, it's an absolute minefield because when these magazines fold nobody tells you that the folding you know they say they'll just say oh, I'm not doing it anymore and then we'll, we'll never have a that kind of notice from them that you know I'm not going to do the dark horse anymore or the gutter it's, it's just something we have to find out through time so it's what makes it a, an amazingly exciting and vibrant collection to, to have but it's also you know it's difficulty as well is that it's a movable feast and it's hard to actually, actually catalogue and keep on keep on top of in that sense so this impulse of yours, Maria, to come in and bring your bring copies of Pavement Poetry was exactly the right thing to do. This is an interactive uh, process by the by the sounds of it. And I'm conscious that over behind us there we've got people in uh, booths. What, what's going on there? They're in uh, they're in booths with reading lamps. Is this a bit of research going on here? Yeah, I would have thought so. Um, it's a great place to come to think, to to read 
and and to write. We have a, you know a lot of poets who use the library. Uh, John John Hegley uh, once came along, wrote a poem and left it on the table, forgot forgot it and disappeared. You know, so I think sometimes the, you know just the idea of being here is more important than what you actually do. You know, it's a kind of it's a kind of um, wonderful place just to come and get away from everything. You know, and you can look you can look out the window and you can see the traffic flying flying past on Waterloo Bridge and people dashing to work and the commuter rush and all that and you feel somehow away from it. I'm feeling terribly guilty because we're talking about how it's a, it's a quiet place for people to get away and we're making a racket here. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling like we should uh, drift off, say goodbye to Dylan for a moment. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Hawthorne. There is no Hawthorne on these clifftops. I want to soothe your heart even when the words aren't for you. I offer this antioxidant to your anxieties as a cardiac tonic for winter deliriums. My minds may blossom for the lovesick. Do you want to link me to death? We have, both of us, chronic heart failure. The rose that stabs you is your own organ. There are hawthorns, I'm told, in the new Hockney exhibition, but you have to pay to see them. Better the welcoming hedgerows in Regent's Park, though we'll never blossom, you know this, so far north of the river's black aneurysm. Hawthorne, Critigus monogyna, or Levigata, or Oxyacantha. There are lots of different botanical varieties of hawthorn that herbalists use. Um, we use the berries and the flowering tops of the plant. I chose to include this plant in my herb sketches for Chris because it is commonly seen in England, is widely used by herbalists, and has folklore and magic attached to boot. A member of the rose family, it also has thorns, hence hawthorn rose having an affinity for the heart. These plants are indicated whenever the heart is affected, either physiologically, heart failure, hawthorn would have been used for a dropsy, a historical term for when too much fluid accumulates in the ankles due to poor heart pumping action, or emotionally, broken-hearted, grief. Unsurprisingly, hawthorn is linked to death. Its flowers were thought to smell of death and were thus a taboo to bring indoors. My first unknowing encounter with Hawthorn was through watching the 1967 film Camelot. It's May, it's May, the lovely month of May, sings Vanessa Redgrave as Guinevere. Hawthorn, a.k.a. May Blossom or Mayflower, was used to decorate the Maypole for the pagan festival of Flora, symbolising fertility. However, Hawthorn, as mentioned, is more of a herb of the heart than of the loins, and one could interpret its, the appearance of its blossoms as the blossoming of love. The flowering tops, buds and leaves, and autumn berries, are used by herbalists as cardiac tonics, strengthening the heart and easing palpitations. They are suitable for the lovesick, the love delirious, and those suffering from grief as well as heart failure. Much research has and is being done on the various compounds in hawthorn, the oligomeric procyanidins, flavonoids, phenolic acids for their hypertensive and antioxidant effects, as well as their actions in slowing the heart muscles while increasing their contractility. Hawthorn grows both as a tree and a hedge, haw being the old Saxon word for hedge. If you want to collect the flowers and young leaves to make a herbal infusion, welcoming hedgerows can be found lining parts of Regent's Park. 
I remember my teacher telling me the best way to take hawthorn is to nibble the fresh leaves off the tree once they start appearing in spring, which sort of appealed to the goat in me. I also remember seeing two hawthorn trees on a walk in Northumberland that were entwined in an embrace as if they were lovers. It was most spectacular and spooky at the same time. No wonder Greek myths included mortals being turned into trees. Marvellous. Wow. <laughs> and I, I love the juxtaposition. I mean, that's the, that's the first time we've heard the two pieces uh, yeah. juxtaposed in that way. We're coming to the end of our time, but I have to ask in just a moment, I think, about the dangers of becoming a herbalist, because it seems to me that there are some occupations and or pastimes that you could undertake on an amateur level with a relative degree of safety, but this ain't one of them. So I'd be interested to know about that journey. But another journey is going to be going on, hopefully, which is the uh, the art exhibit of the jars uh, that uh, form the basis of Pharma Poetica. Uh, what's the story there? Um, well, we're, we were planning to show the cabinet with the poetry in various public places so that people could come across and read poetry as if it was written you know on a sculptural piece so um we've got various places in mind whether they're inside um one particular place possibly the royal college of physicians or the museum of pharmacology but also um taking it on the road to various festivals where we can uh, do poetry readings around it as well yeah, and, you know, that warning, the hazard, you know, that you suggested should be observed by all people, you know. Um, there are poems presented as uh, medical labels. I'm not a doctor, but I do have a few ideas of my own. <laughs> There's something about that look in your eye that worries me, sir. But, uh, you know, I'm, uh, it's, it's a twinkle, you can't take it out, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, to to bring us to the uh, close, can, how did you find your way into this whole business, Maria? Um, initially, I think part of, or through my family, um, my mother's German and in Germany using herbs um, in, within the family for minor ailments is very a common occurrence. So I was always sort of plastered with arnica cream or given chamomile tea. So it was something that I found was very familiar to me. And um, my my father, who's Greek, um, his his mother would also always um, suggest herbs to me from the garden if I had sort of stomach cramps or things like that so the idea of being able to source your own medicines from the outside world um, and then to transform them alchemically into something that would help you and heal you always appealed to me as an idea but I never really knew that there was such a thing as being able to study herbal medicine Um, I always found myself when traveling in uh, gravitating towards various botanical gardens and being completely um you know, uh, fascinated by different plants with different labels. Again, the the Latin names also something very kind of poetic and uh, and uh, alchemical about that. The, you know, what, what what lay underneath these these plants and why why what was the magic within them? Um, and I decided to train partly through that for that interest and because it's of the fact that it's it's marrying both human biology and and physiology and the. Um, the communication and, and understanding of human beings as well as um, the natural world it's two things that blend beautifully together so um, I studied it for three years it's a three year degree although now with, with all the different changes in the student fees I think it's a course that's slowly becoming extinct unfortunately um, and is taught mainly on a much more amateur level um, to, to those who are interested but um, it's not, not an easy life be- being a herbalist because there's not that much um, acceptance of it within within our culture compared to other cultures in the world. I mean, in China, going to hospital there, you're just as likely to be given herbal tea as you are a drug, and they, they're very, they integrate it very much. It's very much side-by-side side, um, 
treatment um, whereas here it's it's considered either something completely medieval or or hippieish or alternative or dangerous or you know it's, uh, politically threatening in some way because uh, it do- isn't as evidence-based as as you know people would like or doctors would like it uh, to be but um you, you can certainly uh, smell that fear among some people i wonder if in a, a city like ours that isn't in part born of the fact that uh, nature is something that's way over there and we don't really uh, find ourselves coming into contact with it knowingly very often and uh, nature is a thing that will rear up and kill us uh, if we look at it the wrong way uh, maybe there's just a uh, maybe this is urbanism kicking yeah, in yeah i think you're right and i think that um working as a herbalist it would be much it's a much more accepted thing and in, in you know outside of urban areas um w- within somewhere like london it's it's much more of a sort of retail um type of work you either have all the different chinese herbalists that you know some of which look less kosher than others <laughs> on the high streets um or it's something that's offered only for very, very particular um, issues, um, but it's not it's not something that you know is, is is much about nature. Although I think that's changing with the urban physic gardens or with the garden even up here on, on the South Bank. Um, I think we're, we're recognising that we need to bring nature in, into um, the urban environment that way and connecting uh, people to it more. And it is all around us anyway, isn't it? In, in London, I mean, it's such a leafy city, but if you look for it, I mean, if you look at this, the squares, you know, you've got a Russell Square just, just over the bridge, and then you've got, obviously, the parks on the fringes of London. You've got these massive cemeteries, these Victorian cemeteries, which have become natural landscapes as well. So I think it's something that's easy to just walk past or, or not engage with, but it, it's it's there, isn't it? And culturally, what I was saying before as well, when I, whenever I'm in the park and I am sort of foraging, and now foraging has become quite a sort of popular popular pursuit and uh, people pay quite a lot of money to go on foraging courses um, but it's something that in other cultures for example closer to home than China Eastern European cultures um, for them going out and foraging for their own berries or mushrooms is a much more commonplace thing that they would be that they would have done and so when I'm in the parks foraging I always notice the people who look at me and who sort of smile or who then start foraging themselves are uh, generally uh, from those cultures because it's something that they don't think of as completely weird or you know a sort of fashion statement but something that's very much close to home the idea of just picking berries off a tree and turning it into a tincture I, th- I think this is possibly where I see the ideas of poetry and herbs coming together because that what, what you're talking about there, Maria, really is a, a distillation of some of the very first lessons. I, I very often think of cave dwellers, our ancestors, having to learn by trial and horrendous error which things were going to polish them off and, and which ones were good to eat and which ones had various effects. And what you're doing there is a distillation of those first lessons. Right at the beginning, Chris, you mentioned the idea idea of poetry kicking in at fundamental times and that 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 very primal need for words to fill a void or to to deal with a situation i I think there's a a connection there it's all very very fundamental Mm -hmm. on that level um it comes together in pharma poetica which is available uh, now by through your publishing company pedestrian publishing yes you can either get it off our website which is pedestrianpublishing.com or because it has an isbn number you can order it through any bookstore or ask your local library to order it for you <laughs> and where can we find out more about your herbal practices and your, Chris, your poetry? Uh, I'm published by Salt Publishing, so you find books on online. You just put it in Google like everything else these days, and you should get back a Chris McCabe. Hopefully, it'll be this one. And Maria's. Uh, yeah, and I moonlight as the apothecary's daughter, and uh, I have a website um, which uh, needs a bit of updating, but it's theapothecarysdaughter.com. Well, Maria Vlodi, that's Christmas cake. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Thanks, thank you.
that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Chris McCabe and Maria Vlatidath. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.